I invite you to take your Bible and open to the book of Revelation chapter 7. Did you bring your little chapter outline of Revelation? How many brought them? Ooh. Anybody on my left here? Yeah. A few? One? Two? Okay. Good, good. Well, let's take a quick look at it. And, um, of course, chapter 1, the beginning of the whole book, we have the vision of Jesus, and we're introduced to the seven churches, and the whole purpose of the book of Revelation. Then chapters 2 and 3, we've got the seven letters to the seven churches. But please remember that it doesn't stop there. Those seven churches not only received each uh, a small letter, but they, they had the entire book of Revelation. And they made very careful copies and passed it on to the next church. Originally, there would have been one original, we call it the autographs, the original parchments on which those, those first uh, scriptures were put down in print. John would have sent it off to the first church. They would have read it, made a copy of it, and then sent it on to the, the second church and then on to the third and so on. And then we get into chapters four and five, and we have kind of a prelude, if you will, uh, to the tribulation. We have uh, the vision of heaven and God on the throne. We're introduced to the four beasts, the 24 elders, and also to the lamb, the Lord Jesus, and then to a seven sealed book. Last week, we began opening up the, uh, the book. Each seal seems to open a, a new section. It's my understanding that the seven seals take us right through the seven years. Whether it's one seal per, per year or one seal has six months and another seal a year and a half, we don't know. It's not up to us. We don't have to know. But um, the Lord wants us to know what's happening, what's going to be happening. And that's why we have the book of Revelation. So... In, uh, chapter, um, in chapter 6, we had uh, six of the, the seven uh, seals that were opened. And um, I think that it takes us fairly near the end because we've got this tremendous earthquake and men uh, hiding from... Uh, the Lord Jesus from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath is come. It says in verse 17, I think this is right, right close near the end of those seven years. And um, they will not repent. They will not come and uh, bow down and repent. They, they just want to be hidden away from the wrath of God. And of course, unsaved people, they don't want to repent. By and large, they um, they want to run from God. Well, tonight we are looking into chapter seven, and chapter seven um, is not so much chronology. It doesn't it doesn't follow, as it were, chronologically right after chapter six. Even though chapter 7, verse 1, and after these things I saw four angels standing, um, it doesn't mean chronologically. It just means that after he had those visions, here's another vision that he had. And again, in pouring over and over, 
the chapter and the whole book numerous times. I think that uh, chapter 7 gives us our first peek back at an important uh, event that is going to affect the whole seven years. And it's the 144,000 and the great multitude. And so with that in mind, let's ask the Lord to uh, help us and bless us as we we study the scripture. The idea, folks, is that when the Bible studies over, our hearts are warmed up and our faith has increased. And then we go to prayer. Hmm? That's sort of the idea. So let's bow our heads for prayer. Our father, once more, we thank you so much for the word of God. Where would we be without the Bible? We would be totally lost. We'd all have different ideas. Every man would do that, which is right in his own eyes. We'd have no standard to turn to, no guide, no light or lamp for our feet or our steps. Father, we thank you so very much for the Bible. The book of Revelation is uh, thrilling. It's exciting. It's scary all at the same time. Because these things are absolutely real and they will happen. And they'll unfold upon an unsuspecting earth. That's where we live. Right now we call it home. Maybe we shouldn't, but we call it home. And people we know and we see and live nearby. And maybe some that even live in our own homes that are not saved. These are people that more than likely will be in the tribulation. Our Father, help us to have hearts for the lost and to do what we can before the trumpet sounds. Help us to apply ourselves for whatever time, days, months, years, whatever we have left. Lord, may we be faithful in your service. Please help us now and increase our faith in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, understand that uh, the rapture is going to remove every single born-again man, woman, and young person off the face of God's good earth. And for a short period of time, there will be absolutely no born-again people. There will be uh, Jewish people, there will be Gentile people, but there will be no one who's actually saved for a short period of time. All born-again people are gone. Now, chapter 7 deals with what appears to be a tremendous harvest of souls throughout the world. Um, My opinion, although it does change a little over the years, is that it begins at the beginning of the tribulation and quite likely the greater percentage of people of this great multitude will be saved more in the early years of of the seven years of the tribulation and will maybe taper off, trickle off perhaps. Um... How in the world did uh, all of these souls get saved? Because we have these, these two groups spoken of in chapter 7. We got the 144,000 and we got this tremendous group that no man could number. We're going to talk about that in a moment. How did all those people get saved? I think largely due to the evangelistic efforts of the 144,000. I think that God knows what he's doing. It seems that when uh, a Jewish man or woman, gets saved, and then the light bulb comes on, and they really realize who the Messiah is, and they get saved, they become a zealot. Often it's that way. When Jewish people get saved, they have such a zeal for others to be saved, particularly other Jews. And that came out very clearly in the Apostle Paul's life. His heart's desire was for his brethren 
kinsmen after the flesh, Israel, that they might be saved in Romans chapter nine. Now we get to verse one and we have what looks to be a little calm uh, before the storm or a calm in the middle or something. It says, after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. That sounds very physical, very literal. It doesn't sound spiritual. It sounds very literal. The angels are holding back the wind from blowing on, on the earth and the sea and on the trees. And, um, Man, he looks to science to get his answers as to why the wind blows. And he looks at the heat of the sun and heat and cool and so on. Expansion of the air and causing wind and so on. And uh, this may well be. We're not going to deny that. But something that we also have to realize is that God is actively at work in his creation. And here God is stationed for Angels, special angels of some sort to hold back wind. And wind has tremendous power. You know that. How many here have ever tried to uh, walk in a, in a very, very windy day? Have you ever done that? Anyone? And it wasn't so easy, was it? Wind can really hold you back. Uh, wind is able to flip over cars and uproot trees. I wondered what the, the world uh, wind speed record was. What's the fastest that the wind has ever blown? And this is what I found back in 1999 in a tornado in Oklahoma. The wind was measured using Doppler radar and it was clocked at around 318 miles an hour. Now that's about over 500 kilometers an hour. If you've ever been driving the highway, 100 kilometers an hour, it's about 60 miles an hour, and you try and stick your hand out the window, you feel that wind. Well, um, I read about a guy who took his mother-in-law up in a little airplane. And this was a little open cedar, two cockpit, two, two seater open cockpit uh, airplane. And he took his mother-in-law up and um, these things are flying at like a hundred miles an hour. And she thought she would see what the wind feels like. So right away she stuck her arm out. Well, the wind nearly tore her arm off. And that's at a hundred mile an hour. This is three times that. And so that uh, tornado in Oklahoma in 1999, you could look it up on the internet. It was devastating. Now, as I say, ma modern man thinks in terms of science. He doesn't think in terms of spiritual things. And so therefore he misses a whole dimension. Modern man cannot understand that there are uh, angelic beings and uh, that there is the presence of God in his creation. And there are four angelic beings here that are holding back the winds. You know, with all of man's technical know-how and his scientific explanations, God still rules the universe. He does. Now, what would happen? What's the result of zero wind? Because that's what it looks like here. That the four angels are holding back all the wind. So now there's no wind blowing at all what would happen well i i looked into that a little bit the wind really helps distribute uh the heat from the sun and it helps cool the hot spots of the earth so the earth's atmosphere with no wind would begin to stagnate days would be hotter and nights would be colder 
The wind also helps to grow um, crops and our gardens. And so vegetation would suffer. The wind helps to purify the air we breathe. So air quality would, would uh, uh, drop like a rock. Air pollution would skyrocket up. The wind helps to evaporate water, filling the clouds and watering the earth. So no rain. Every boat or ship that required wind in its sails would sit idle in the water. Wind turbines that produce electricity for millions of, of homeowners. Every turbine would sit still and it would cut electrical power to millions. Isn't that something when you start thinking about what would happen if, and that's what we seem to have here in verse one, verse two. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to, uh, to hurt the earth and the sea. And so here, another angel having a seal of God cries to these four angels, a big loud voice. And here's what he says in verse three saying, hurt, not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees till we have sealed till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And therefore the whole purpose of the, um, uh, the angels holding back the winds is so that um, uh, these 144,000 can be sealed and no harm comes to them. Wow. Uh, the idea of sealing is seen in Ezekiel chapter nine. Let me read for you. And the Lord said unto him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof in the new Testament. Also, we have something similar in second Timothy two nineteen. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. In fact, it tells us in Ephesians that we are sealed with the Holy spirit of promise. What is a seal? A seal is a device or a means of showing ownership. And with the ownership comes authority. Now in, um, In this chapter here, I think that we see that God is wanting these 144,000 to be sealed before he unleashes wrath upon the earth. And so this is why we tend to think one reason we tend to think this is near the beginning of the tribulation time. You remember when the Jews were still in Egypt and on the night of the Passover, God instructed them that they were to mark their homes by applying the blood of a lamb to the doorposts and the lintel of each home. And that would protect them from the wrath of God because the angel of death passed through the land that night. And God's promise was when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And there was the institution of Passover. Now we come to verse four. And John says, and I heard the number of them which were sealed and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, different religious groups, particularly the cults, the Christian cults, 
they like to misinterpret this. The Seventh-day Adventists teach that the 144,000 are Seventh-day Adventist members who are faithfully uh, having communion on Saturdays. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach the 144,000 will be Jehovah's Witnesses that, of course, all go up to heaven and rule over everyone else on earth, over all the other Jehovah's Witnesses on earth. Many other cults have got some strange ideas. There's a cult called the New Golden Dawn Flying Roll. Let me repeat that. Imagine, uh, where do you go to church? The New Golden Dawn Flying Roll. And it teaches that um, the 144,000 will be those whose, whose blood will be cleansed so that they cannot physically die, but will have immortal life on earth. Like where do they get some of this stuff? It's not from the Bible. But the Bible is very clear that these are 144,000 Jewish people. Jewish people. Do you remember when Peter on the day of Pentecost quoted Joel chapter 2, where Joel predicted that in the end days, God would pour out his spirit upon his sons and daughters. Do you remember all of that? Well, I think we may have something like that. Someone has, has said that because it mentions daughters there, that here there may be the presence of both men and women in the 144,000. And so there are some things we won't know till we get to heaven. That might be one of them, but I don't have a problem with it. Now in verse five, some of the um, people argue that the 144,000 is a symbolic number representing all of the redeemed from all ages. However, that, that can't be. That actually sounds like a heresy called British Israelism, if you've ever heard of that, in which the 10 lost tribes are actually British. They're found in Britain. It says in verse 5, of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. And of Gad were sealed 12,000. There's 12 tribes mentioned here. Now, I can't help but believe that this has nothing to do with that craziness of British Israelism. It has nothing to do with Seventh-day Adventists or J-dubs or or those golden flying roll guys or anything like that, that it's simply exactly what it says, a literal number of 144,000 coming from a literal number of 12 tribes. These are all Jews. There's not an alien in the bunch. There's not a Gentile to be found. In the Old Testament, God often talks of saving a remnant of the Jews. You can see that in Isaiah chapters 9, 10, and 46, Joel chapter 2, Micah chapter 5, Zechariah chapter 8, for example. So the 144,000 is something like a remnant because today there's give or take 12 million Jews in the world today. 144,000 would be like a remnant, although I believe there'll be more that'll be saved at the end of the tribulation perhaps millions more. Now, the list is very specific. It's divided by logic rather than by birth order. 
And it'll mean more to the Jews in the tribulation, I think, than it will to us right here and now. And the next several verses go through the different uh, tribes. Now, um, the tribe of Dan is not there. The tribe of Ephraim, not mentioned. And some say, why? Why is that? Well, that's a good question. Boy, if we get the answer to that one. But some commentaries suggest that it may be because these two tribes were the most involved in idolatry. Now, this may or may not be the case, but we note that in Deuteronomy 29, 21, God warns that idolaters would be separated from the other tribes. Dan's idolatry is seen in Leviticus 24, Judges 18, and 1 Kings 18. Ephraim's idolatry is seen in Hosea chapter 4. So we don't have any definitive answers as to why we've got a little difference in the, the names here included in the 12 tribes, but this makes for some good discussion. Now, these 144,000 are not saved today. They're not saved right now. Because if they were at the trumpet, at the rapture, they'd be taken to heaven. All saved people will be taken at the trumpet. So these 144,000, whoever they are, at this very moment, they are not saved. Um, we note in Galatians chapter 3 that right now in this age of grace, this church age, the Jew and the Gentile are one in Christ. And so when Jesus comes in the clouds and the trumpet sounds, all saved Jews and Gentiles will be caught up together with the Savior. We'll be saved before the tribulation. We'll be saved out of the tribulation or before it begins is what I'm trying to say. Now these 144,000 mentioned here in chapter 7 will, will be found all over the world in every country and every language. I believe that there'll be evangelists for the Lord Jesus in Matthew 24, 14. And you can write that down. Matthew 24, 14. The Lord Jesus talks about the gospel being preached all over the world. And then shall the end come. So it may well be that the 144,000 will be at least the kickoff, the initial means by which God is going to get the gospel around the world. Surrey is part of the world. We have Jewish people living right here in Surrey. It stands to reason that uh, some Jewish people, if not in Surrey, perhaps in Burnaby, if not in Burnaby, perhaps in downtown Vancouver or North Vancouver or someplace, but there's Jewish people around here. And when they get saved, they're going to start heralding the gospel all around. And I think Surrey's going to get it too. Boy, I'm really trying hard to make sure that everyone in Surrey gets a good, clear presentation of the gospel, that as many people as possible can be saved and taken home to heaven before the tribulation begins. Now, a great multitude will be saved all over the world during the tribulation time. Many, of course, will not be saved, but a great multitude will. There are people today who hear the gospel and reject it. Say, so what's going to happen to them? Well, if you want to just keep your finger in Revelation 7, we'll go back to 2 Thessalonians and take a quick look. Uh, there we are. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, let's see here. Antichrist is spoken of in verse 8. Uh, Holy Spirit is spoken of in verse 6 and 7. And he's going to take us out of the way. Take us away in the, in the uh, rapture. And then shall that wicked, capital W, reference to the Antichrist, be revealed. Right now we don't know who it is. Some of us think it's Donald Trump's limousine. That the limousine is the Antichrist. But we're wrong for sure. So then will, shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. That happens at the end of the tribulation. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. People who die and go to hell, they will be deceived. Because they received not the love of the truth. Received not is past tense. These people who are deceived by Antichrist did not receive the gospel at some earlier time in their life. It says uh, they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Verse 11, and for this cause... God shall send them strong delusion that they shall believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. People who clearly understand that Jesus is God in the flesh, died on the cross, rose again the third day, knocking on our heart's door to forgive us our sins. No, I want nothing to do with that. That's not my cup of tea. You can keep your Jesus. I don't care if he is God. These people entering into the tribulation will be given a delusion. They'll believe the lie of, of Antichrist. They're not going to get saved. They will not be saved. There's people today who hear the gospel and don't quite understand it. There are many people who have not yet heard the gospel. And these people will have a chance to be saved. I wish they would all be saved, don't you? It's sad when people reject. They really, I think, don't know what they're doing. So, these 144,000, they're going to be God's evangelists during the tribulation when the day comes. But they're not doing it yet, are they? They're going to be all over the world evangelizing and through their preaching and witnessing and their prayers and their labors, an untold multitude. I don't know how many hundreds of millions or billions. I don't know. will get saved, but they're, they're not doing it now because they themselves are not saved. That's where we come in. We're saved. So we need to pick up the, the slack. We need to get involved. Every Christian needs to be involved somehow. We need to do what we can. And if we can't go, then we ought to support those who can go. Every one of us can pray. 
Every one of us can get on our knees and pray for the lost and agonize and beg that God would give them another opportunity to hear the gospel and would grant them the faith and open the eyes of their understanding so that they could see and understand and believe and be saved. We can pray for the lost and pray. We ought to all of us can take gospel tracts, keep them in our pocket or purse, and then, you know, give them out or leave them on the bus seat or something. We can all do that. We can pray and ask God to give us opportunities to invite someone to church. And if you pray, believing God will give you opportunities. Those wonderful, amazing 144,000 evangelists. Boy, I'd love to see them in action. Oh man. But right now we're the ones folks. It's up to us. Now let's move on here. We'll get into verse nine. After this, so after John had seen this vision of the 144,000, I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. So they say there's give or take 200 countries in the world and something like, what is it? 2000, 3000 languages. Maybe there's more languages in the world spoken. And there's going to be people saved everywhere. And uh, we've seen a lot of people saved over the last 2000 years, all throughout the world because of the missionary efforts. But when the 144,000 get turned loose, Boy, I think we're going to see days of revival like we've never seen before. Revival so important. We ought to be praying for revival. We ought to be praying for this city for revival. Wouldn't that be something? News would travel all around the world. Have you heard what's happening in Surrey? Surrey, what's that? It's a city. Oh, where is it? It's in British Columbia. What's happening in Surrey, British Columbia? People are getting saved. Not by the onesies and twosies, but thousands are getting saved. The churches can't, can't hold all of the, the crowds. The churches have gone to three and four services to try and accommodate them. They're crying for church planters to come and start new churches to accommodate all these new believers. The Fraser River. That's the only, the biggest baptistry around and, and, and we're, we're getting them all baptized. Have you heard? Wow. Wouldn't that be exciting to be part of that? You know, down through the years, there have been cities that have experienced such incredible revival. They're in the history books now, aren't they? Because we don't hear too much more. Why is that? Has God changed? Oh no, they say it's the sign of the times. You can't have revival these days. You can't win multitudes these days. Boy, isn't that something? Because we serve a God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's not willing that any should perish. And it is the desire of God to see men saved. So much so that God gave his only begotten son. I wonder if maybe we need to pray more. I wonder if we looked at what our forefathers did. Maybe we could learn something. Because those men and women spent more time on their knees. Those men and women had prayer closets and they spent time in the prayer closets, drawing close to God, 
and begging God. Wow. Boy, we need an army of prayer warriors. Hey, I am happy to say that I think we're starting to grow our own small army of prayer warriors here in this church. I'm excited about it. Already we have about, oh, I think 15. Millie, how many ladies are on the list, the rotational list for prayer Sunday mornings? 12 to 15? Yeah. I've, I've handed out about 17 papers to men that I thought were uh, able to be prayer warriors. I've got back six so far, six confirmations. So I think we're going to get at least another six. And so we may have 25 to 30 men and women who will give themselves to prayer. They'll be our prayer warriors. I think tonight, in fact, isn't that what we did Tonight, yeah. Mrs. White, where are you? Tonight's the first night we put the prayer warriors on the prayer list. Yeah, when you get your, your prayer list. Oh, you already have it, do you? It's on there, on line number eight. The prayer warriors. We want you to start praying for the prayer warriors. That God would move through them. I mean, what do you want to see God do? And that's where the prayer warriors come in. Pray for the prayer warriors, right? Hey, if we were in a battle, if our country were in a battle, we had all these soldiers and uh, the, the foot soldiers, and then we had the uh, Navy, uh, and we had the Air Force, we had all of our military, we'd be praying for them, wouldn't we? We'd be praying that God would protect them and empower them and keep them safe and give them wisdom and give them the ability to overcome the onslaught of the enemy. We need to pray for our prayer warriors. Well, anyhow, I think that God is starting to put together a small army of prayer warriors here. By the way, can I say this? There's always room for another prayer warrior. How does that sound? So for, you know, someone who said, well, I didn't get an invitation. There's always room for another prayer warrior. All right. Okay. Well, chapter seven here talks of this great harvest of souls throughout the world. And I think that the, it's only my opinion, but I think that the greater bulk of them are going to get saved within the first two, three years, the first half, say. Because in the second half, that's when Antichrist really starts bad, becomes, turns his, you know, shows his colors. He is exceedingly bad and fierce. So I think that the window of opportunity is open more in the first half. My opinion only, but I think so. But we have here in verse nine, uh, a great multitude, it says, which no man could number. So why does it say that? Why doesn't it say how many there'll be? Well, God has his reasons, but here's one thought. You know, the Antichrist is going to be a bit of a control freak. And he's going to use uh, people and technology to control the masses. It's possible that this is one way of God mocking the Antichrist. That the Antichrist has no power. He's powerless over people getting saved. And it's just maybe a God mocking the Antichrist. Here's something you can't control, fella. You can't control the number of people. You can't even count them. Back when the Jews were in Egypt and God was going to bring his people out 
he began a series of plagues. Do you remember that? Each plague, if you study it, was a mockery upon the false deity within uh, Egypt. They worshipped frogs. It was one of their their uh, their little um, amulets and deities and things. God said, you love frogs? Here you go. And God polluted the land with frogs. That's just one example there. There was 10 plagues, I think, that all mocked Pharaoh. You know, man cannot even number the hairs on his own head. You know that. So only God can number this great multitude, which no man could number. Obviously God can number it. It's sad. The things that happen in the world, isn't it? Some of the atrocities and even the disasters, the natural disasters, what we call them, natural disasters. Back a few years back, Oh, goodness, I don't know, what was it? Katrina that hit in Florida. Wasn't that like two in the early 2000s, 2005, 2003? Somewhere in there. And all these people died. Tremendous amount of people died. Well, did you know there are still at least 30 bodies sitting in these sealed caskets? They can't identify them. They don't know who these people are. They've got a body, but they have yet to be able to identify him, which means they cannot bury them because they don't know who they're burying. That's sad. And yet God knows every single person who's perished, every person who vanishes or disappears in a tsunami or a windstorm or a hurricane or tornado or some volcanic eruption or a landslide, or the sinkholes, or all these different things that happen around the world, and people disappear. God knows every single one of them. God knows every person before they are born. He knows them before they are formed in the womb. Before conception, he knows. He knows them. You say, how do you know he knows them? Because there's this book called the book of life. And every single living person has their name written in that book of life. And when they come to death, the point of dying, if they're not saved, their name is blotted out of that book. And if they are saved, their name is not blotted out. Why? Because God actually wrote those names in to the book of life before the foundation of the world. So even before they were conceived in the womb even before the world was created god had his book he wrote your name in it he wrote my name in it because we're saved unsaved people because god knows who's going to get saved he knows who's not going to get saved those people they get their name written in the book the moment that they're conceived and then the moment that they die no matter how they die as soon as they die their name is blotted out Now, we studied that already. This is old news for us. We've studied this subject more than once back earlier in the book of Revelation. Well, God knows everyone who gets saved. And if you're saved, God knows everything about you, all of the details. He knows all of the struggles that you go through. He knows all of the tears you've shed. 
He knows every cell in your body. There is nothing he does not know. And he's promised never to leave us or forsake us. Isn't that good news? One day the unsaved, many of them will cry out to Jesus Christ himself and say, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out demons and done many wonderful works? And the Lord Jesus said that in that day, he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. God knows every person who's going to get saved. And this great multitude, which no man is physically able to number, God knows them. Now, my guess is that there has to be at least hundreds of millions. I don't know, possibly billions. I don't know. Only God knows. But what we do know is that they're of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues from all over the world. Every nook and cranny, every soul that gets saved is a cause for rejoicing in heaven. And God knows the number. Well, what are the conditions that could cause this great multitude to get saved? Well, number one, is we happen to have the largest population in earth's history. Over seven and a half billion people today. Number two, the shocking effects of the rapture. You think it through. When Jesus comes in the clouds, the trumpet sounds. We're caught up together with him. Hundreds of millions, maybe billions, I don't know. Gone, disappeared suddenly. This has to include airplane pilots. It has to include train engineers, bus drivers, automobile drivers. The 144,000 Jewish witnesses will be soul winners and evangelists. The chaotic world conditions that will increasingly come on the earth. Earthquakes have a way of getting people's attention. Of course, the power of the Holy Spirit. And number six here, I wrote down these six. Number six is the power of the word of God. Our soul winners and our fire brigaders are out there faithfully. Sowing the word of God in the city of Syria, city of 600,000. Once in a while, they get the door closed in their face. Once in a while, they get told, get off the property. But it only happens once in a while. But the greater bulk of them seem to smile, take the literature, and close the door. Out of that huge number, tens of thousands that we've handed out, someone has got to be looking at it. Someone has got to stick it here on the table or put it under a magnet on the fridge. Or maybe put it inside a book, act as a bookmarker. And the word of God that we've been sowing so faithfully over the years in the tribulation will start taking fruit. Bearing fruit, I, I should say. And people will get saved. And so God promises his word will never return void. In this verse 9, it says that they were given white robes. That indicates they're saved. And palm branches are a sign of victory. Just like Jesus' triumphal entry, you remember that. So we come to verse 10. So they've got, this is the crowd now. 
and cried with a loud voice saying salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb. Now back in uh, Jesus day, the Jews would carry uh, palm branches during their uh, festive times. And uh, during the triumphal entry, this was nothing new waving palm branches in victory and uh, here they are crying out with a loud voice because they're excited to be saved. Today in chapel, Pastor Tim preached a great message. And essentially the thrust of the message was, even though you've had some great moments in life and done some great things, experienced some wonderful things, the thing to be thankful for is you're saved. That's the thing. And at the end of life, that's all that's going to matter. It was Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the, of the 1800s when he lay dying on his deathbed and he really died a young man just in, you know, not even 60 years of age passed away and he was dying. And, and he said, if, if God, you know, he said my theology, that's what he said. My theology now is reduced to these words. Jesus died for me. He said, if God were to raise me up again, I'd preach a lot more than that. But he said, that is more than enough for me to die on. We'll never know how many people trusted Christ as savior on their deathbed. And as maybe they closed their eyes in death, they repented and received Christ as savior, like the thief on the cross and then opened their eyes in a glorious tomorrow. We'll never know until we get there, right? Maybe we'll get an opportunity to hear testimonies. We'll put little marks in a cloud. There's another one. There's another one. Peter's going to say, what are all those marks in the cloud for? Oh, these are people that got saved on their deathbed, Peter. There's another one. That's what matters most. And that's what these people were excited about. The fact that they're saved. When you and I lose the excitement of being saved, that's when we're on our way down. That's when the Bible is going to seem like a stuffy old book. And, you know, we're going to nitpick and we're going to come up with reasons why we shouldn't go to church and why we shouldn't serve the Lord. When we start losing the thrill of it all, of being saved. Very same thing in marriage. When married people lose the thrill of being married to each other, that's when it's just business as usual. That's when they can become two strangers just living under one roof. That's why we have marriage seminars, marriage retreats. That's why we do it. That's why we encourage closeness, husband and wife closeness. We never want to lose the, uh, the wonder of it. A man wrote a book about marriage and he said, don't let the honey drip out of the honeymoon. <laughs> Always stay in love. Very important. We must never lose the joy of being saved. Now, verse 11, look at this. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. Now the angels get involved. And when they see and hear the excitement of the great multitude, they just, are so excited they fall before God and they thank him and praise and worship him. Verse 12, here's what they say. Now there's seven items here. You can count them as we go through them. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Someone says that was well brought up. Verse 12, saying, Amen. Now, what comes after Amen? Not quite. What is it? Can't hear you. Still can't hear you. A colon, right. A colon, that's important. It's there for a reason. A colon sets up an equation. Two sides of the equation. They're, they're both related. Both sides of the equation are related. The, the, the right-hand side, the second part of the equation, explains the first part a little more. And we do that with time on the clock. We say it's 1207. And between the 12 and the 07, there's a colon. 12 hours and 7 minutes. They're both related. They're, they're kind of equal as far as they're both elements of time. They're related that way. But the seven minutes give a further explanation of the 12 hours. It's not just 12 hours. It's 12 hours and seven minutes. And so what we have here is we have, amen. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, now here we go. Count them out with me. I'll say number one, and you say what it is, okay? See if, if we get ourselves totally confused here. Number one is blessing. Number two, glory. Number three, wisdom. Number four, thanksgiving. Number five, honor. Number six, power. Number seven, might. All these things belong to God. You don't realize the power of amen. Someone does something for the Lord, you say, amen. What you're doing is you're giving worship to God. You're agreeing that to God belongs blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. And all these things belong to God. And it's a form of worship. You know, uh, why are they doing this? Because... The great multitude praised God. That's what caused the angels to do this. The great multitude were so excited about being saved that it caused all the angels to say, Amen, blessing, glory, and so on. Isn't that exciting? Makes me wonder if when we praise God and worship God here on earth, if some of the angels get involved up in heaven. Now, verse 13, it says, And one of the elders, remember them? The 24 elders. Now, we're not 100% sure who they are. But probably the best guess, it's a safe guess too, is that it's a composite group of leaders from the 12 tribes of Israel, one for each tribe, and the 12 apostles. But I'm going to be honest with you. There's a problem with that. Because if it's... <laughs> If the elders are the 12 apostles in there, well, John is an apostle. So what is John talking to himself? Do you see the problem? No? Yes? Doesn't matter. It's just one of those crazy things. We don't know who they are, but probably the, mo the safest guess is what I told you there. Anyhow. 
Uh, this fanfare from the great multitude and all the angels cannot go unnoticed. And that's why it says one of the elders uh, in verse 13 answered saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes? Now it's a reference back to verse nine, this crowd, that multitude, which no man could number at the end of verse 13. And whence came they? And so the idea here is the elder is drawing John's attention. He's saying, now, John, before you move on, let's consider this crowd. Who in the world are they? And in verse 14, John, he simply answers. He says, sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, there was no one in that crowd that John recognized. It's because they hadn't been saved yet. This crowd, this crowd that no man could number doesn't represent all of the saved of all of the earth's ages. Otherwise John would, you know, see his uncle there and see his aunt over here and see his mother over here. This was a crowd that he didn't recognize. These came out of great tribulation. So the seven years is called the tribulation. The last half often is called the great tribulation. Now, does that mean no one got saved in the first half? Uh, again, I don't think so. I think a lot of people got saved. I think the whole thing really to me is great tribulation. I don't know if we can actually split a hair there and say, well, no, it has to be from three and a half years over. I, you know, I'm not sure we can do that. Possibly I'm wrong, but let's go on and let's, let's learn a little more about them. Therefore, are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple? And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. This crowd, this saved multitude that no man could number is so in love with God. They never want to leave his side. If they had prayer closets, they'd never want to come out. How is our love for God? Because these people really love God. When you read your Bible and get down on your knees, do you feel close to God? Because we ought to. This great multitude felt exactly that way. And so they stay with God day and night. But what made these people feel that way? What would make us feel that way? And I think the answer is in the next verse, verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. These people suffered on earth. This is not suffering in heaven. This is, this is earthly suffering about hunger and thirst and about heat and about tears. God met every need. He met every need. I'm reminded in Genesis 21 when Hagar, the slave girl, through whom, of course, um, Ishmael was born. And remember, finally, they put her out. They got rid of her out in the desert. She thought she was going to die. She couldn't bear to see her son die. She went a piece away there. Angel met her, met her, gave her water and so on and helped her. 
You know, Christians who suffer here on earth seem to love the Lord most. The Lord Jesus gave the illustration of a wealthy man and to, to him, two creditors were brought and one of them owed, I forget the exact amount, I'll, I'll just say $50. That's not what the Bible said, but I'll just use that amount. And the other one owed $50,000. Neither one of them had money to pay, so he frankly forgave them both. And Jesus, in talking to the Pharisee with this story, he said, which one will love him more? And the Pharisee, well, to whom was forgiven the most? And he says, you've answered correctly. And, you know, when the Lord does things for you, when he forgives your sin, you realize how rotten your sin is. You love him more. When he meets your needs, you pray to him, you cry out to him. He meets your needs. You love him more. So I think this may be why this crowd really, really loved the Lord and did not want to leave his side because they realized how much he's done for them. When you and I think of how much he's done for us, it can't help but make us love him. That's why we have that song, count your many blessings, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Then look at verse 17 and we're done. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Look at how Jesus, the great shepherd, cares for his great multitude. Every need is met. Every tear is wiped away. Maybe you've had a few heartaches. Maybe you've shed a few tears. And Jesus is able to heal heartaches and wipe away tears. A pastor from Fredericksburg, Virginia, named Dr. Marion Henderson was conducting a tour of Israel in a tour bus. And he had done this tour many times. He was riding in the tour bus from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he was sitting up in one of the very front seats. He was leading this, this tour group. And he himself was about half asleep. He'd made the same trip many times. All of a sudden, the bus lurched to a stop. Screech went the tires. There in the middle of the road was standing a shepherd. And Dr. Henderson later said that with a 48 passenger bus coming straight at him, he said, I wouldn't have been out there on the road, but this shepherd was. And he stood there. And the bus came to a screeching halt. And then the sheep started to cross the road. Not all at once, but in twos and in threes and in ones. And the shepherd never hurried them. He just stood his ground until the last sheep was safely off the road. And then he followed the sheep and he he threaded his way through the flock until he was up front again, leading his sheep. And the great shepherd, Jesus, is exactly the same way how he leads his sheep. Dr. Henderson also said that in southern Palestine, there are many caves. And when the shepherds are out there with their sheep, a sudden storm will come and these caves will offer shelter for the shepherd and the sheep. And he said, in some of these caves, 
They're big enough where several flocks of sheep can all be herded into one cave in order to escape a storm. But after the storm, the shepherd doesn't have to, to look for markings and brands in order to separate the sheep to find out who's, who's they are. All the shepherd has to do is stand back from the cave and start calling to his flock and the sheep hear his voice and know him and the sheep will come out after him because they know his voice. And isn't that exactly like our great shepherd? We are his sheep. We know his voice. He gives unto us eternal life. Praise the Lord. You know what you and I ought to be doing every day is asking the shepherd to lead us. Lord, lead me today. Help me today. Guide my steps. Don't let me make a mistake. Help me to be a blessing to someone. Give me someone I can invite to church. Someone maybe I can give a track to. Help me, Lord, to serve you. I think that this may be why the great crowd loved the Lord so much. Well, listen, God willing, now we're going to be starting chapter 8 next week. Chapter 8 and chapter 9 deal with the seventh seal, and that's the seven trumpets. And this is where things get really hairy. Six of the trumpets are given in those two chapters of 8 and 9. Maybe we'll look at the both chapters next week. And what they are, remember, is attention-getting devices. God is still trying to get the attention of the world. And we'll look at that next week. Let's bow our heads in prayer.